Thank you to the Middle East Institute for inviting me to be here with you all today. Um, it's always good to come back to Singapore. What I'd like to do in this session is first of all, just to give you an overview of what I'll focus on. And the first will be two key concepts about nationhood and innovation, both of which under, will underpin the entire presentation as they relate to China and Israel. And then we'll look at some key trends, uh, parallel in both countries, spe focusing specifically on innovation, technology, and infrastructure. And within that section, I will put it in a broader context of a strategic higher altitude view of how this is happening within the US-China relationship. And then we'll conclude by considering some key takeaways for the US-China-Israel dynamic, and then very specifically uh, foreign policy implications for all three sides. The first is this matter of nationhood I share this quote with you from uh, Jonathan Goldstein. Let me just read it very quickly. Both the Chinese and Jews historically have grappled with the concept of nationhood. While the Chinese and the Jews share the, his, the, um, the rhetoric of being divinely chosen and special people, peoples, the reality of foreign persecution turned many Jews like Chinese into pragmatic nationalists. Um, could, could I just ask how many for, I know there are some students from Israel here, but who non-Israeli students are, the, have any of you been to Israel? You can just, oh, okay, oh, okay, good. Um, now, for those of you who are Chinese speakers, you'll know that the word for China is Middle Kingdom. And Middle Kingdom has this notion of China's centrality in the universe, uh, in the global order, and more modern day politics. But this notion has something to do with Tian or heaven. And so China's view of its place in the world has some of that divine element. And then of course, uh, Israel, both in terms of biblical history and modern history, also have this notion of being a divinely chosen people uh, and contribute to humanity with that kind of preordained uh, providence, if you will. So these two concepts are very important because that is a kind of affinity between both countries and it explains why uh, the Chinese have this great admiration for Israel. Uh, I, I've been there a few times and every time there are a group of Chinese tourists and they go and they're very impressed that Israeli vendors are able to speak a few words of Chinese. Uh, and also, but the, beyond that, beyond just the tourist element, there is this deep admiration because uh, Israel and Israeli and Chinese culture both highly value family, education, and entrepreneurship. So there's that, that uh, common bond, if you will. Now in modern day history, if we look at modern Chinese history and uh, modern is Isra Israel's modern history when it was reconstituted as a nation in 1948, 
Well, see, there, there, there was a lot of persecution which both sides, the Chinese and Jews, experienced during that time. So they shared this, also this common denominator in terms of making them realize that they have to be pragmatic nationalists, okay? Uh, now, innovation, uh, this is uh, something that has been written about many, many publications. I'm going to, I just listed three that I think are, for those of you who may not be familiar with Israel's innovation ecosystem and culture, uh, the startup nation, thou shalt innovate Israel and China from the Silk Road to the uh, super innovation superhighway. These are some very good introductory books to become familiar with why or how Israel has been so thriving in innovation, and then also uh, the Israel-China relationship in that regard. Now here, this quote is from the Startup Nation, something about the DNA of Israeli innovation having to do, this, this is one person's perspective, but again, for those of you who have visited Israel, you'll understand that when a country is small, and it is surrounded by adversaries and always under constant risk and threat and uncertainty and vulnerabilities, you need to think of ways to survive. You need to think of ways to protect yourself. You're in a desert land. If you have limited resources and at the same time surrounded, you, are, you have no choice but to take risks. So the gist of this uh, quote is to say that there is this social culture there because many have to serve in the military and again, surrounded in a very volatile region. Uh, they are forced to think, take risks, be creative and be critical in their thinking, always qu questioning assumptions because every day is different and every day could possibly be a day under threat. All right, uh, the, this is, this. Graphic is just to give you a sense of Israel's innovation ecosystem. The data actually might be, these are from 19, uh, 2018 data, so the, the numbers maybe actually have increased. Nevertheless, it's just to give you a sense of all the foreign multinational companies that have set up R&D centers throughout Israel and in different regions, as you can see, Haifa, Jerusalem, the northern region, Tel Aviv, so on and so forth, which shows that international companies recognize the talent pool and the, uh, the environment that is optimal for technological uh, R&D. Okay, now let's just shift gears a little bit to look at China. China most recently has initiated a kind of mass entrepreneurship and mass innovation initiative, really from top down. The Chinese government realizes that uh, this needs to be a whole of nation approach in developing China's technological capabilities. So there has been a mushrooming of tech uh, entities startups all the way up to the very well-known tech giants, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, ZTE, so on and so forth. Uh, let me now just give you a little bit of history very quickly in terms of 
Chinese investment and those leaders who began to recognize the need to invest in Israel. Li Kaixing, uh, at least I think a few years ago, number one on the Forbes riches list of, in Hong Kong, he saw the need to start investing in Israel. And you can see, just I've put down some of the areas in which he started to invest uh, his, his uh, company recognized that uh, Israel's startups community was worth investing in. And then he, of course, helped fund the GPS app Waze, W-A-Z-E, as you see there. And then also he realized the importance of education, cross-fertilization between China and Israel, so then decided to donate $130 million to the Technion, which many of you know is at least the U.S.-Israel equivalent of MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So very prestigious university producing the best and the brightest in technology, engineering, science, so on and so forth. And then in 2015 set up the Guangdong Technion Institute. So there's that view already from Li Kaixing, and he's not the only one, but he's the most emblematic of the under that recognition that China, Chinese, those who are able and willing to take risks should invest, begin investing in Israel. Okay, uh, these are some of the top brands, Israeli brands, Tanuva. Uh, I am told by my Israeli friends that this is a national brand, a dairy brand, the biggest brand uh, from little children to all the way to adulthood. Adults, if you see this brand, it represents home, it represents Israel, uh, everything from milk to dairy, dairy products. So China uh, acquired it and in 2015, Bright Foods Company acquired it because it, uh, again, realized that this is a jewel uh, company and product, and so China, China snatched that up. <coughs> and then um, Mobileye, if I had the opportunity to visit the Mobileye uh, hot offices in Israel, very impressive with what they're doing. They're, they produce the autonomous driving vehicles, the, the screens in the cars, among many other things. Uh, they have something called IQ, E-Y-E-Q, and they are a pair of glasses for blind people. They put them on and they can actually read. The, the glasses will read the text and then the verbal content will come out very impressive to see that on the highest level all the way down to very personalized level, Mobileye is at the, uh, the front leading, leading edge of cutting edge technology in uh, Israel. And that is partially funded by um, Intel, the American company. Okay, Israeli technology in China, just wanted to show that uh, China, of course, is very open and receptive to Israeli technology. So we have IDE technologies uh, with the water de desalinization plant, and then the Netalim, or Netafim, sorry, Netafim, right, agriculture as well, and then uh, KLA Orbitech, which produces the solar panels in, in China. Okay. 
Now, this is not just company to company. I wanted to show this slide because it shows that the China-Israel relationship at the highest levels, uh, and I'm talking about the highest levels of government, is a very clear indication that this is a serious relationship, the China-Israel Innovation Cooperation, which really started formally in 2014 uh, and has, through the years, at least up until 2018, when Vice President Wang Qishan, who is very senior and considered to be really the right-hand man of Xi Jinping, uh, that, he, that he, Wang Qishan was sent to Israel to meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu at the time to launch this JCIC, Joint Committee on Innovation Cooperation, shows you how much weight China is putting behind this initiative. And I'll note that Israel is the only country that has this kind of mechanism at a senior level with China. So that speaks volumes about this relationship, particularly the innovation cooperation relationship. And of course, China sees how much, how important it is to invest on the long term uh, in Israel's idea innovation ecosystem. Uh, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, was also on that trip last year, which again speaks volumes in terms of Chinese, the Chinese private sector and tech giants looking at Israel. And then Jack Ma sent up, set up his own academy in Israel as well. Uh, China, okay, so the, this technology is from the Israel side. Many see an opportunity for Israel to contribute to the China's Made in China 2025 initiative, which is in, basically it's an industrial plan for China to develop, uh, become an advanced manufacturing leader by 2025. And then eventually its goal is to become, China's goal is to become a world leader in innovation by 2035. Okay. So let me now put this all in context in what Carl was talking about earlier, the US-China uh, trade war or escalating tensions, however you wanna characterize it. So what we're seeing now is the emergence of two divergent worldviews represented by the United States and by China. And these two worldviews are increasingly becoming uh, divisive and uh, affecting all countries. Uh, as again, your prime minister during that Forbes interview said, don't make us choose sides. But what we're seeing now is this uh, two contrasting or competing visions and sets of values represented by these two countries. So make America great again is President Trump's notion of America first, America primacy, US national interests first and foremost. Xi Jinping's great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is in many ways the epilogue to a historic narrative of a century of humiliation and victimhood. 
So what Xi Jinping now is saying, we are going to restore China's centrality in the global order. So returning China to its rightful place. And this again, these, these kind of divergent worldviews con is contributing to the escalation of tensions. Now, with MAGA, the MAGA mantra under Trump, uh, what Trump has done is pursued a very kind of uh, rule-breaker approach. So upending traditional US foreign policy propelled by populism and protectionism. And then Xi Jinping, on the other hand, under this great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, this China will seek to rewrite international rules with Chinese characteristics to serve Chinese national and global interests. But the two share a common denominator. She and Trump both share this view that there's a need to protect and preserve national sovereignty in the midst of all of this um, competition. Now let's take a closer look at how China is ascending on the world stage. In 2017, the Chinese Communist Party had its National Congress, 19th National Congress, at which time Xi Jinping laid out his vision for China and set out some key targets listed here. And it is China's, basically he's saying China's rejuvenation will happen in two stages of 15 years each. First stage being 2025 to 2035. Second stage, 2035 to 2050. Of course, 2049 marks the 100th, the centenary anniversary of China's founding. So this is the long-term view. And the, this timeline, if you will, this strategic window of opportunity is very rapidly shrinking in the midst of this trade war. So the Chinese Communist Party, they understand that it's shrinking, particularly as the US restricts access to sensitive technologies, as we're seeing with Huawei semiconductors, so on and so forth, which we'll talk about a bit later. So um, the, what, what, we're, what we want to take a look at now is how this great rejuvenation will happen. I'm just gonna zero in on two centerpiece initiatives. Uh, there are many more, but just for the sake of this session, we'll look at the Belt and Road Initiative and the Made in China 2025 plan. Belt and Road is the signature policy of Xi Jinping. It is a platform for China to project its geopolitical influence through its infrastructure development capabilities. And as you will see, or actually let me transition here, make it give you a closer look at BRI. You can see how it's geographically expansive. And these key regions behind me all have critical assets for China's development, be it natural resources, energy, ports, logistics, technology, shipping, et cetera. There are many more, but the idea here is all of these key assets contribute to China's development as well as China's projecting its influence in these regions. Uh, 
although it's not listed here, uh, there's, it's very hard to find a BRI map with other countries, but Israel is part of it. The port of Ashdod uh, is up there or included in BRI. Israel is looking for ways to contribute to BRI. Uh, but it, is, it expands across the Middle East, Central Asia, the Gulf states, and Southeast Asia, as well as into Europe. So a good portion of BRI is in in the Muslim countries as well. But there are some concerns about BRI and because BRI is very long on rhetoric and symbolism, but still very short on substance and standards. And many of the partnering countries or organizations really have three concerns about BRI. The first is that it's still very opaque in its lending and financing practices. Because for these major infrastructure projects, you need to have sound and uh, responsible financing. The, th the second factor is a lack of governance transparency. And the third is substandard management of debt sustainability, particularly in de debt distressed countries such as Sri Lanka, Pakistan. So let me give you an example. China is intent on making BRI as green as possible, so eco-friendly, very environmental, ESG, environment, social governance, uh, all these aspects. However, there is currently no single law overseeing the environmental and social impact of Chinese companies operating overseas under the auspices of BRI. So even though China is offering green credit, green bonds, uh, green investment principles, green financing, uh, China, BRI, China Middle East Green Initiative, China ASEAN Green Cooperation, still about 23% of these projects still fall with under under international standards. Um, and there are some studies that say that even though the green bonds should go toward uh, financing green specific or environmentally specific uh, projects, they end up actually financing coal investments and hydro projects. So there's a need still, China is working on um, at least raising the standard of BRI financing and um, development capabilities. So the big question is, so what is the United States doing about this? Well, recently the US, when the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, was in Bangkok, uh, announced that the US is initiating something called the Blue Dot Network. And the Blue Dot Network will be led by the US uh, Overseas, Private, uh, Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, in partnership with Japan Bank for International Cooperation and Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And the concept behind the Blue Dot Network, many will say that it is a counter initiative or an alternative to BRI in that it strives to set higher global standards, not only set them, but also to certify 
that any global uh, infrastructure project meets international standards. So it's, uh, they have basically coined it in a way of, it's like a Michelin, Michelin guide to investment infrastructure projects to just make sure that, okay, there's some rating system to verify that it, it is both socially and environmentally responsible. So we'll see how it goes. It just was recently initiated. But the point here being that BRI, because it has that geopolitical dimension to it, the US and at least at this point, Japan and Australia realized they need to have a countermeasure. Okay. Um, okay, is that? All right, I think, Kevin, are you seeing the graphs? Are they? Yeah, no data there? Okay, okay, no problem. We will, what I'll do is just convey the key points that you'll see here and then we'll take a look at uh, some other data. So right now, uh, this is the, I mentioned the Made in China 2025 plan. That is really the backdrop to the US-China tech race. And essentially, China's priorities now in the US, in this tech race is to invest capital and human talent in leapfrogging in order to surpass the United States. That's the long-term goal, okay? Again, remember, I referenced that this timeline is shrinking, so China realizes it needs to go, and uh, it's actually implementing a military, commercial, symbiotic approach where both the military and private sector in China work together to acquire and invest in uh, strategic technologies. On the U.S. side, the priorities still right now are to maintain the U.S. lead in strategic technologies because the U.S. also realizes that the time window is narrowing and that it must maintain, be able to maintain and set standards for technology, particularly when we talk about 5G and other technologies in, the, in, the, in determining the future rules of engagement in digital governance. So let me give you an example, just to give you a sense of how fast this tech race is progressing. Last month, Google, Google announced that it had achieved quantum supremacy with the superconducting quantum computer. Uh, soon after that, uh, the University of Science and Technology in China announced that it had hit quantum supremacy with an all-optical quantum computer. Now, many leading physicists in the academic community estimate that actually China is already tied with the United States and quantum technology or quantum computers. And also that China has already surpassed the United States in quantum cryptography. So can anyone guess what quantum cryptography would mean? Any wild guess? Right. Basically encrypting everything. So in, in very plain, plain language, it would mean that China could hack any quantum computer, but it would be impervious to hacking. In other words, uh, and, and actually some academics 
leading physicists estimate that China could go completely dark in the next two to three years. So in other words, it would not be able, uh, external quantum computers would not be able to hack China's systems. So with this, this kind of development, um, and, and I also will note that China is in the process of developing quantum artificial intelligence, and uh, Chinese media is reporting that the uh, leaders of China have already launched an internal government working group to study 6G technology. So this is just to show you that the national security risks and threats, particularly in the high-tech area, uh, the stakes are extremely high and in large part explain why the U.S. is curbing China's access to sensitive technologies. This graph gives you a sense of worldwide patent filings uh, for all aspects of technology. You'll see the numbers here that China, um, the National Intellectual Property Administration in China has seen a year-on-year -year growth over the past 23 years in, in patent filings for tech, all different areas of technology, um, electrical machinery, biotech, you name it. It's, these are based on the world intellectual uh, property indicators of 2019, their recent report. And at the same time, the U.S. Patent Office has seen a decrease first time in nine years in 2018. Right, just to give you a sense of how, how rapidly uh, and aggressively this tech war or tech race is unfolding. I've also included this, this tech race uh, dimension on, from Russia because it also further underscores that the fact that this tech race is not just between the U.S. and China, but that Russia is also involved in terms of partnering and bolstering China's developments in technology. So this, this um, nomenclature here of China-Russia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership of Coordination for a New Era is in foreign policy terms China and Russia's way of saying, we are going to ramp up our joint efforts to counter U.S. Uh, technology and dual technology developments. So you can see from some of the main points that it includes science and technology cooperation, military and military technology cooperation, as well as uh, missile defense and a new era of uh, innovative technologies, tele telecom, robotics, AI, biotech. And then in the in the the box, you'll see a very short chronology of Russian investments in Chinese technologies. Okay, just to give you a sense of how Russia and China are supporting each other. Uh, for example, HK Leaks, anonymous website, uses a Russia-based server. And for any of you familiar, HK Leaks uh, is it used for doxing the Hong Kong protesters 
and doxing is posting personal information of the protesters online. It could be the protesters and their family members, all their personal information where they live online. And so some pro-Chinese communist groups are affiliated with HK Leaks. So essentially, when an individual is doxed online, their physical safety comes, faces danger offline. So this is a Russia-based server, I mean a, a website that uses Russia-based servers. Just a very small picture or an example to show how even social media is being used in a geopolitical context. Okay, let's switch gears now to, you've seen that big context, bigger context, context of the US-China relationship, the US-Israel relations, of course, are longstanding. I've listed here just some of the key aspects of US-Israel relations. Um, the United States was the first country to recognize the state of Israel upon its founding or re reconstitution in 1948. Israel is a U.S. strategic ally in the Middle East. Israel was the largest recipient of cumulative U.S. aid since World War II. Um, basically, about, Israel receives about $3 billion U.S. dollars every year in U.S. aid. And just recently, I believe in fiscal year 2019, the U.S. Congress approved a package of $38 billion in U.S. aid to Israel for the next 10 years. And this is a, this just shows how, how uh, strategic this relationship is. Okay, and then there's also U.S.-Israel strategic cooperation, joint political military cooperation, and so on and so forth. Right, just to, to show you that now we have, there's the U.S.-China relationship that is facing increasing tensions, and you have this very important U.S.-Israel security geopolitical relationship as well. Okay? You, and now let's put the equation all together. U.S.-China-Israel, some of the key security risks. The port of Haifa I have here is, um, has a largest port, port city and has a naval base near it. 2015 agreement between Israel and the Ministry of Transportation and the Shanghai International Port Group. This group will doesn't own it, does not own the port, but will be managing its operations. So there was some controversy in the uh, Israeli National Security Committee uh, community about why was a Chinese why is a Chinese company given the contract to manage the port of Haifa? Ashdod also, again I mentioned that in the BRI, in the context of BRI, similar situation. And the concerns raised by the US, particularly the US Navy, is because the Sixth Fleet is in that area and because there are naval bases close by. Uh, the U.S., both the U.S. defense and intelligence officials were concerned, are concerned about potential security risks if there's a Chinese presence at both of these ports. Okay, Secretary of State 
Mike Pompeo was there, was in Israel last month, and I'll just take, let you take a look at really the bolded areas, which just shows uh, U.S., increasingly the U.S. is very vocal with their Israeli counterparts regarding China's increasing presence uh, in Israel. And uh, Secretary Pompeo mainly highlighted the need to understand, for Israelis to understand the role of the Chinese Communist Party and its potential implications for Israel. Right, so now we'll conclude just with some of the key takeaways from uh, this, this discussion. As the U.S.-China trade, trade uh, war escalates, and if the U.S. continues to restrict Chinese access to U.S. technology, where is China gonna look? Israel. And now, we'll see how the situation unfolds, but Israel now realizes the U.S.'s concerns and recently announced that it will form a kind of governmental advisory board to oversee foreign investments, foreign direct investments into Israel. And it is in many ways a counterpart to what the U.S. has, an entity called the Committee for Foreign uh, Investment in the United States. And it is an interagency at the federal level, an interagency body that reviews um, proposals for, of a foreign company to either acquire an American company or to uh, have majority stakes in an American company that specializes in technology, sensitive technology. We had a, there are many cases, uh, but one that may, that has some national security implications is, was, is called Lattice. It's based in the state of Oregon. They produce semiconductor chips. China wanted to acquire this company. Cepheus put the brakes on it and said, no way. Okay. But anyway, the Israelis realized that they also need to have some kind of oversight to monitor uh, any Chinese acquisition of um, Israeli com tech companies or startups. Okay, so Israel as the startup nation and key U.S. ally in the Middle East will face high stakes and hard choices uh, in balancing Israel-China relationships as well as uh, Israel's relationship with the U.S. in the whole context of U.S.-China relations. Thank you.